We're going to be in Acts 12, starting with uh, verse 20. The last time we saw Herod Agrippa I wreak havoc upon the church, we see James lose his life, but Peter was sovereignly spared. Today we're going to see the, the death of evil King Herod, the city of Antioch turned into a missionary base, and if we have time, the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey, starting with verse 20. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus, the king's chamberlain, their friend, they asked for peace, because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. So we see there's an issue that arises between King Herod and these people of Tyre and Sidon. To get a little familiarity with that, Tyre and Sidon is modern-day Lebanon on the Mediterranean in the Middle East. So this was a big problem for Tyre and Sidon as their food comes directly from Herod's district, certainly not a guy they want to be at odds with. The solution was an apparent bribing of Blastus, one of Herod's high officials, and a deal is brokered between the two irreconciled parties. The deal satisfies everyone, no doubt money was probably changing hands because that would, that's what happens in the world. Herod's ego is inflated and he receives the people's worship. It just goes to show you, nothing's changed 2,000 years later. The world will worship anyone who takes care of them. And this sets up the situation really for the Antichrist. If you don't believe me, look at some of the political figures. They're practically worshipped. The celebrities, they're practically worshipped. People are stampeded stampeded during concerts, okay, because it's the worship of man. But this Antichrist who will come, the Bible tells us, will set up a false peace. It'll be a temporary time, and no doubt the Middle East will calm for a while, and people will look at him and practically worship him. For decades, no one has been able to figure out the problem in the Middle East, and this guy's done it. Hail whoever he is, right? He'll set up an economic, political, and social stability and he'll cause people to worship him, and they'll receive the mark of the beast. Uh, without that mark of the beast, no one will be able to buy or sell food, clothing, or anything else. And we've speculated before on what that could possibly entail. With the age of computers, it's endless. A chip implanted in the forehead or the right hand, uh, some kind of laser skin. It's all, the technology's all here. But it's really sad because it's the worship of men that lord over other men. Jesus changed that. He said to his disciples, in ministry, we're going to do it differently. We're not going to lord it over other people like these rulers do. By, if somebody wants to be great and be a leader, you have to become a servant. So Jesus changed the landscape of thought there. So many people are in darkness. If they would only come to the one who created them, to the living waters where they would never thirst again. And I've used this example before. I often have to take sips while I'm up here, but... You know, when you drink of the living waters of Jesus Christ spiritually, you'll never thirst again. Imagine that. Every day we we experience thirst. So we drink something. But Jesus Christ spiritually nourishes our soul. The living waters flow over our soul. And we don't need anything else spiritually again because he fulfills that. Jesus is also the bread of life. But the world is motivated by the here and now. 
I want you to turn to Philippians 3.17. Only a few verses there. Philippians 3.17. Paul says this. Brethren, join in following my example and, and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Where do we fit in here? Because Paul makes a dichotomy. It's, it's one or two roads. Jesus makes a dichotomy. If you're on the fence, get off. And if you are on the fence, by default, you're not on my side of the fence. We're supposed to be really honed spiritually to make a decision. Do we want to follow what God is doing, or do we want to follow what the world is doing? It said, these people set their mind on earthly things, as if we were going to live here forever. You know, whatever you're looking at in this world, whatever I want, whatever feeds my desires, that's what I'm looking at. But Paul wants us to set our minds on heavenly things, knowing that Jesus Christ is our hope. You know, he's the one, the author and finisher of our salvation. We have much more than this world here. He talks about those whose God is their belly. A life ruled by appetites. If I'm hungry, I have to eat something. If I'm feeling frisky, I'd like to have sex. If I want something, I just take out that super shiny plastic credit card and lay it down. I don't care what the, you know, torpedoes be damned. I'm going to get what I want, right? And that's the attitude of worldly people. What we have to realize is we're not of the world anymore. When we're born again, we have a different abode, people. Secular historian Josephus, when speaking about this particular situation with Herod, Antiquities of the Jews 19, he records a little bit more of Herod's oration. And I'll fill in where that's applicable. Number one, apparently this festival or this oration of Herod's took place during the festival of Caesar in A.D. 44. It's a historical, also recorded event. Two, the record tells of Herod's oration in a robe of silvery cloth. I don't know if this guy, you know, you ever see the military? They have their battle uniforms and then they have their ceremonial uniforms. They're all crisp and tight. And, and real nice-looking uniforms, but they're, usually you can't fight in them. You need something where you can move around. Well, the kings in those days would have, you know, ceremonial robes. And I could just picture Herod come out in, in this ceremonial robe. Uh, history tells us that it was a, of a silvery cloth. I don't know if he had sequins on it or something really bizarre, but apparently when he was out in the sunlight and he had this, you know, probably from a high position, and the sun shone on him, it probably glittered. And it kind of fits with the Scripture. The voice of a God and not of a man. Not only were his words magnificent, but he looked probably like what they thought an angel or a God would look like. And they got caught up in this. In Herod, though, we see a succumbing to flattery and pride. I want to quote a few Proverbs. Proverbs 16, 18 through 19. It says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. So Herod certainly realized that very quickly, according to this um, portion of Scripture. 
Proverbs 26, 28. It says, A lying tongue hates those who are crushed by it, and a flattering mouth works ruin. He certainly got a lot of flattery. It certainly added to his, his pride and his ego, but it worked him ruin. Proverbs 27, 6, on the other hand, says that faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of the enemy are deceitful. People like to be flattered, but somebody who's always flattering you is not your friend. <laughs> They're usually looking to get something out of you. It's not, according to the Bible, it's not a good thing. And Proverbs 9 uh, kind of goes in with Proverbs 27, 6. Really, the ones who love you are the ones who tell you the truth about yourself, although people resist that. You can see a person who loves the accolades of men. They're ego-driven, and this certainly was the case with Herod. They're easy to manipulate with flattery, and they're highly unstable. But you know what's worse? When it happens in ministry. So many ministers across the, the world, especially our country, are so ego-driven they, they become so caught up in the cameras and the, and the money and all the glitz and the huge megachurches that what they do is they lose sight of the word of God. And then when they go on shows like Larry King and they're asked a question about the gospel, they hem and haw because they're afraid to offend people. They have such big flocks. They can't offend people at this point because they could use some of that income or they could lose some of it. It's pretty sad. I have a theory. A flock emulates their pastor. And I've got to tell you, I'm very happy with um with your response you know if there's something you don't understand you ask me a question you don't just accept it hook line and sinker because because that's something that i i you know act 17 11 don't just take my word for what's going on i want you to go back to the scripture and see if what i'm saying is the truth that's why we hand out bibles i know many of you are discerning and you won't swallow anything i feed you i know that i've done my job but the moral of the story is as in the case with herod don't be a follower of man. Pastors come and go. Evangelists come and go. Celebrities come and go. But the word of God stands forever. The Tyrians and Sidonians, when Herod died, their hope died with him. Tyre and Sidon. Herod's gone. What are we going to do now? Maybe Blastus can help us. Maybe the next uh, Herod will come in and help us out. But they're in a panic because when Herod died, the temporal, their hope died with them. With us as Christians, when Christ died, our hope had just begun. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, that was only the beginning of our hope as believers because we know the rest of the story. We know what we have waiting for us. Although today God doesn't appear to mete out instant justice as in the case with Herod, um, he still won't share his glory. And I certainly would be afraid of sharing his glory. Isaiah 42.8 and Isaiah 48.11, God says, I will not share my glory with anyone. Be careful not to accept achievements as Herod did as something we've built, but rather be thankful to God. Remember the story about Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylonian king, right? He knew about God. And in a moment of pride, he walked out into his palace and he looked around and he said, oh, the great Babylon that I have built. Remember what happened to him? God struck him down. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if that could still happen today? <laughs> You'd see a lot less people on television, that's for sure. Well, what happened to Herod? You know, he grew long hair and his nails grew and he was on all fours and he started eating grass like an ox. He went mad for seven years and then the Lord restored him. And Babylon still went, you know, still continued to flourish while he was like a madman eating the grass. So I would just say, let's remember 
Nebuchadnezzar. Now, although, again, God doesn't seem to mete out instant justice, what does the Bible say? Malachi 3.6. God says, I am the Lord, I do not change. God doesn't change. So if he felt something thousands of years ago and he felt that strongly about it, he still feels the same way today, and we have to be certainly mindful of that. According to history, Herod became very ill and died a painful death, Josephus records it, then emanated from his bowels. It's believed that Herod died of roundworm infestation in his intestines. I hope none of you had a big breakfast this morning. But I did a little research because that's what I do. Sometimes I go off on a tangent. But I looked it up. Roundworms, they're disgusting. They can grow up to two feet long. They rob the body of nutrients and they can cause intense pain. So this guy died a very painful death. And that would certainly explain in verse 23, he was eaten by worms and died. No, it didn't say whether he was eaten from the inside or the outside. But it also is not uncommon for angels as God's direct ministers to execute such severe judgments and mete out plagues. Because we're also going to see when we get into Revelation that the angels kick in again. They start meeting out those plagues, right? I certainly want, I know I'm not going to be here for that because God has promised me to take me home. Verse 24, it says, and this is key, one little phrase, but the word of God grew and multiplied. Not the church, not the apostles, not the ministers, but the Greek genitive possessive logos tu feu, which means literally God's possessive word. He owns those words. And even today, the word of God will grow and multiply. The same words that he had back then, he still holds dear to his heart now. He does not change. I've talked to my board and my elders at many occasions, and, you know, and people have talked to me, and they say, well, you know, the, the local TV channel can give us free advertisement for the church, um, we talked about mail-outs. We talked about a little a few things. But I, you know what I tell the guys? I'm not a flashy guy. I'm not a gimmicky guy. If our church grows, it's not because of mail-outs and advertisements. I just, it's just not me. And again, I don't think it's a wrong thing, but it's just not me. It's not my heart. I want the Word of God to change you. And the Word of God is changing you. You know how many times I hear in the hallway somebody says, hey, meet so-and-so, this is my boss, or so-and-so, this is my coworker, or this is my mother-in-law. All the time, people want to come out to church with you because the Word of God is changing you. So as the, word, as the church grows, and I see it growing, I know it's because of natural means, not unnatural means. I've always been a simple person, and I'll stay a simple person. You just give me the Word of God, and that's all I need. The church was being persecuted at the time, but the word of God grew and multiplied. Evil leaders come and go. They terrorize God's people, and then they die. Or they're deposed, but the word of God outlives them all. Pontius Pilate, Herod Agrippa, you know, we see the movies, you know, the, the, the remakes and stuff, and they seem like these terrible guys, and they are. Nero Caesar, fast forward, Adolf Hitler, a lot of the communist leaders that have come and gone in Europe and Asia, Really terrible people, killing millions of innocent civilians. But who's afraid of Hitler right now? Anybody? Anybody afraid of Nero Caesar? They're gone. As quickly as they come is as quickly as they go. But the word of God lives forever. And I guess my question today is, who is causing opposition to your faith today? If you think about it, some of you are sitting here and you're working in a job and you may have a boss that's just antagonistic to your faith could be causing opposition to your faith today. 
could be the governor of your state making laws and trying to impose laws on you and making you pay for them through tax dollars that are just ungodly and you don't agree with it. You're like, what's this, this country and this, this state coming to? could be a classmate that's just bothering you and, and maligning you because you're a Christian. could be a coworker in an next cubicle that harasses your belief system. Sometimes, sadly, it comes from within. It comes from carnal Christians. You're trying to live a good and godly life, and there's just people that are just so worldly, and, they're, and they just, oh, stop being such a prude, or, oh, you know, whatever they're saying to you. It's almost like they're trying to wear against your faith. The first thing I would say is pray for them. The second thing I would say is realize that God only allows this type of behavior for so long before he does something about it. Jesus said that he was the rock. And when the church is built on that foundation and the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. But the word of God grew and multiplied. In the beginning of the chapter, we see the church was down. If this was like a football game or a basketball game, they'd say the church is down and the oppressors are up. But now we see a switch. Herod is dead and the church gets to breathe a little bit. Many atheists and naysayers over the millennia have predicted the death of Christianity. And you can read some of these historical quotes from some of these uh, anti-Christian uh, you know, espousers. And they're such, such fiery and interesting quotes. And they've been gone for four, five, six hundred years, a thousand years. And Christianity is still here. Oh, the death of Christianity. The age of enlightenment is coming. Well, the only enlightenment, the only light that's going to shine on this decadent world is the word of God. It's the light of God's word. So the way I look at it is this. It reminds me of a train. The train is God's progression. It, the, the train is God's will. The train is God's plan. And, and it's going. It's full, it's full steam ahead. And it stops every once in a while to see if we want to get on or not. Well, we could either get on and be a part of what God's doing, or we could kind of wave to the train and watch it go by. But nothing's going to stop that train. And we're just going to stay in the same position. So the challenge today is, are we going to get on the train and move forward to what God is doing, or are we just going to stay in the world? Verse 25. It says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they took, also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Barnabas and Saul finished the task of blessing the tr- Jerusalem church with supplies, and then they come back fulfilling their ministry. Number one, because of their faithfulness, now they're ready to move to the next step. I covered that last Sunday. I talked about If you're faithful in the little things, you know, God tests you, he proves you. And as you keep doing better and as you keep rising to the occasion and the responsibility that God has for you, he'll make you faithful or he'll he'll put more things in front of you in ministry. Two years ago, I went on a pastor and pastor's wives couples retreat. And one of the name or the one of the main themes was fulfill your ministry. Now, the Greek word for ministry is service because we're all to serve as unto God. You know, as much as you may like me or you may like Pastor Anthony, you may like the church, you can't serve as unto us because one day, as as hard as it may be to believe, you may not like me or it's even harder to believe that somebody wouldn't like Pastor Anthony. It's easier to believe that somebody might not like me one day. But one day you might not like like us and, um, you know, you still have a ministry. You still need to serve as unto God. And often... Misinformation about leadership is based on misinformation and gossip, and unfortunately it happens in every church. And sometimes people get hung up on terminology and dance around, what is gossip? Because it happens, right? What is gossip? Tell me exactly what it is, because 
you know, there's a behavior that I want to continue in, but I don't want to cross the line and for people to see that it's gossip. So I'm going to clarify what gossip is. And again, this has to come up every so often. I'm going to use the dictionary, Webster's Dictionary, to define it. And I've used the scripture before, and I will continue to use the scripture. A gossip, noun, is a person who habitually reveals personal or sensational facts. It's not just personal. They're also sensational facts. This person is the pot stirrer. Everybody knows the pot stirrer. They go around, they, they talk about things, and they stir the pot. They stir up people's emotions. Wow, scandal. Wow, the leadership did this or the leadership did that. And gossip leads to slander. Slander, according to the dictionary, is a false statement or statements that are damaging to a person's reputation. Unfortunately, usually it's damaged in the eyes of weak-minded people who don't obey God's command to get the story from all sides. And that's against Proverbs 18.13 and Proverbs 18.17. Slander leads to division. Division is disagreement or disunity. It's something or someone who divides or separates. In its worst forms, it can lead to factions, cliques, and ultimately church splits, and I've seen it happen. Again, this type of nonsense happens in every church, but if it happens here the way I see it, people have two choices. Number one, they can go through the proper channel. Anyone at any time has access to me, and they've done it before, and they can do it again, and they can find out the facts. The second thing is if you can't find the clamp big enough to put on your mouth, your sin will catch up to you. It'll find you out and it'll, I'll find out about it. The second thing you can do is if you can't keep quiet about gossiping, there's four doors in the back, and there's eight doors that lead to the outside. Anybody can leave at any time with divisive behavior. I've asked people to leave before, and I will do it again. Titus 3.10 says this. Reject the divisive person after the first and second admonition. I only have to give them two times knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Regardless of anyone's position in this church, I will act if this continues. As you can tell, I'm not Joel Osteen. I'm not looking for a 30,000 membership flock, okay? My job as a shepherd is not to be popular. I don't care about popularity. My job as a shepherd is to provide a safe environment for people to come here and to receive the word of God. A lot of times people don't want to become Christians because of the way Christians behave, and that will not be tolerated here. Part of shepherding is correcting bad behavior. Proverbs 26.20. I'm almost done with my tirade, so, you know. <laughs> Proverbs 26.20 says this. Where there is no wood, the fire goes out. And when there is no talebearer, strife ceases. Sort of like economics, supply and demand. But if the wood goes out, the fire ceases. Anybody who should be made a pariah is somebody who constantly goes back and forth gossiping. Now, for those of you who have a problem with the venue that I just did this in, you need to go back to your Bible. Because Paul's letters were circulated to the, to the churches. They were to be read from the pulpit. Names were to be exposed and situations were to be exposed. Okay, so I'm not going to say any names, but the venue is certainly appropriate. And I apologize to anyone who's new here, because if you tap someone on the shoulder and say, is he normally like this? And they'll say, no, he's normally warm and cuddly. <laughs> okay, 
So don't serve unto people. Don't ever do that. I've gotten caught up in that in early on in ministry. Serve unto a person because I like the person, maybe the ministry leader, maybe the pastor, and then something happens and I'm bummed out, and then I don't, I don't want to serve anymore. It's because I didn't serve with the right heart. You need to serve as unto God himself. Three, we all have a ministry God has for us. And it may be the challenging part may be figuring out what the ministry is. What is it that God will have you do to glorify him and his work? I want to encourage you right now to pray about your gifts and your ministry because God has given us all gifts. He's all given us a ministry. And fulfill your ministry while there's still time to work because one day the Lord is going to come for us and we certainly don't want to have any regrets. I kind of wasted my life. I was a mediocre Christian. I was kind of carnal and fleshy and my life was all about me. You know, you don't want to have regrets. When the Lord calls us home, we want to be just encouraged to know that we've served the Lord with everything that we can serve him with. And also you see with this situation of taking young John Mark, it represents discipleship. Chapter 13. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues to the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. What's interesting is in the first... First verse, you see a diverse group of people. From the names and locations, you can deduce that there's a representation from Judaism. There's a representation from African, from the African continent. And there's a representation from the realm of government. So it's pretty diverse. A few points on this, and this is the happy part of the message. The first point, in verse 2, God specifically chose Barnabas and Saul. And God had a specific plan for them, and he has a specific plan for each one of us. I can't say it enough times. You see, this is the beauty of a personal God. Um, I used to say there's 5.5 billion people on the planet. I think the new numbers are like 6.4. I mean, the earth is just growing exponentially, the people on the planet. But no matter how many people are populating, God doesn't say, oh, I'm just confused. There's too many people praying at the same time. I mean, he's able... 7 billion, 10 billion, 20 billion. I don't know how he does it. He can, he's definitely good at multitasking. But God can hear the prayers of everybody, you know? So the beauty of this is that we have a personal God. God is intimately concerned with each one of us individually. I look it out, I see a sea of people, but each person who's listening, God is concerned with you. How does that make you feel this morning? Knowing that God is watching over you and he loves you. He knows everything about you. You, you all come in here with something, you know, maybe some of you are struggling with financial issues and you don't want to tell anybody, I can just barely pay the bills. Maybe some of you have recently lost a loved one and you're still mourning over that. Maybe some of you have some serious health, health concerns and the doctors don't know how to help you out. Um, you know, retirement issues, desires, loves, whatever it is, God knows your individual issues. And see, that's the beauty of the gospel, too, that Jesus Christ didn't take a census and say, now there's enough people on the earth, I'm going to die for their sins. Jesus died for everyone. He died for us individually, and he died for us collectively. He shed his blood on the cross that we could have everlasting life. He's personal. 
The second thing is, not only were these men called, but they were separated unto God. Now, the word separated is also the definition for holy or saint. If you look at holy, you go back to the Greek, you look at the, the word saint, there's an element of separation there. It means to be separated. Raise your hand. How many people, particularly this morning, feel real holy? You feel like a holy roller. All right. Good, good for you. <laughs> but not that many. How many people feel that you can call yourself a saint? I hope a lot more of you raise your hand because Paul, Paul calls us saints. And see, I don't see a lot of hands raised. That's why you can't trust your feelings. We don't look at ourselves, unfortunately the ones who do, we don't look at ourselves often as special or unique. Some people too much look at themselves as special or unique. But we don't look at ourselves as special or unique. We look around, we see so many people, you see the person preaching and you think, wow, God's got a calling on his life, what about me? You know? But we all look at somebody else and we, we don't necessarily feel unique, but we are. We have a holy calling, we're children of God and we're saints. Paul writes to the saints in Rome. Paul writes to the saints at Corinth. It's right here in the scripture. Some people have the idea that, well, a saint is somebody that a person dies and the church recognizes them 500 years later and they say, okay, that person's a saint. Not so. Paul is writing to the saints in Rome, to the saints in Corinth. He's not writing to dead people. What does he have to teach dead people about? He's writing to live people. He's writing to saints. That's who we are. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're holy. You've been set apart to be a servant of God the moment that you're born again. I repent of my sins, Lord Jesus. Come into my life. Be my Lord and Savior. At that moment, you've been separated. Although most of us don't live as if we're separated. We still live sometimes in our old life. But we know God has already separated us unto his service. Now we just have to act on it. We have to live it, lay hold of it. That's why if we show up in places that we don't belong, maybe from our old life, in situations that we don't belong, there's something inside of us that makes us feel guilty or makes us feel, I feel uncomfortable. Because you're a saint now. You're separated unto God. You don't belong there anymore. Put away childish things. Three, they laid their hands on these men. Now, laying of the hands we've spoken about, it has Old Testament precedence, but laying of the hands is an outward act or a commission. These people have been commissioned to reflect an inward calling. Now, it doesn't mean that the moment that the hands were laid on these men, all of a sudden they got a tingly feeling and they just got out like a shot from a gun. It means that God has already set them apart. God has already set a calling on their lives. And the process of laying on the hands, okay, was, was more of a ceremonial thing to confirm that calling. Similar to baptism. When you are dunked in the ocean, I was baptized as a baby, but then when I became an adult and I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I got dunked in the water, in the ocean. You know, I didn't, I didn't come out and I felt all tingly or anything, but I was showing the world that I'm dead, dead as Christ died, I died. And as I come, at, come up out of the water, I'm a new creature in Christ. So it's a, there's a significance there. It's an outward reflection of an inward heart change. And the fourth thing here is that this is the start of the first missionary journey, Saul's first missionary journey. Antioch now becomes a missionary base. Now, the great missionary to India and Persia, Henry Martin, said this, quote, The spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. The nearer we get to Christ, the more intensely missionary we become. That's why very often, you know, Rafiki was up here. We've had the rock ministries up here. We've had our, our missionary to Guatemala, uh, Stephen Armstrong. 
we believe very strongly in giving the good news of salvation to the world. You saw the pictures of those children suffering in Africa. You saw the pictures of the children suffering in, in Newark, in the rock ministries. These people live uh, just lives of fear, lives of starvation. You know, there's drug dealers, all this kind of stuff. So what we want to do is we want to give the hope of salvation to a dying world. In the 21st century, it seems that the idea of missions is dwindling. It's more of a, well, let's just help the world. But if we just give them food and we give them shelter and we don't give them Jesus, they'll just die richer people. That's all. That's all we're doing. Matthew 28 says that we need to go into the world and make disciples of all the nations. Fasting, in a nutshell, because they fasted here in addition to it, it was the denial of the physical to accentuate the spiritual. The irony is in Tyre and Sidon, they were only concerned, remember Tyre and Sidon with Herod, they were only concerned with the here and now, the temporal. They were concerned with the food from Herod's district. And they would worship anyone who took care of their physical needs. When Herod died, whoever the new guy was, if he said, hey, I'm going to keep things as usual and feed you, they would have said, yeah, who's Herod? Let's worship this guy. You're kind of fickle that way. But men, the men of God in this scripture here were concerned more about the spiritual, and they worshiped God by denying their physical needs in the terms of food. They denied their food in exchange for an increase in spirituality. Well, Herod died, and what did it do for Tyre and Sidon? You know, what happened to them? It doesn't really say. But you know what? Sometimes we can put trust in Herod's in our lives. There's a lot of things in our lives that we trust in, okay, that we could just put the name Herod over. It's the same thing. You know, it's just it's all about the retirement account. It's all about winning the lottery. That's my Herod. That's what I'm going to put my trust in. Well, what happens when that falls through? Where are you? You're back to square one, and you've got to look for another Herod, don't you? So the question is, what you know, could be relationships? Sometimes we trust in our ability. What could it be about our ability that we say, man, I'm really good at this. I know as long as I have this gift, I'm going to be okay in the world. We do that, don't we? Because we look for things to latch on to. But does it yield eternal dividends or is it strictly temporal? That's why we have to trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior because anything else is just a Herod. That's all it is. Chalk it up to a Herod. Verse 4 and 5. So what we see is that they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to Seleucia. From there they went to Cyprus. Then they arrived at Salamis and they preached the word of God. This is part of Jesus' uh, his command in Acts 1.8. It says to go from Jeru Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It was a ripple or a, a puddle effect. That's where the gospel is just supposed to spread. Seleucia was the seaport of Antioch, which we talked about. And today, for, you know, to get it in your mind... It's the border of the Lebanese-Syrian border today near Tripoli. It might even be Tripoli, I'm not sure, but it's real close. Cyprus was an island in the Mediterranean about 100 miles off the coast of modern-day Lebanon. It was also Barnabas' home. And Salamis was the east coast of Cyprus and also the seat of government. And we're going to talk more about that uh, next week. And wrapping it up, they had John Mark as their assistant. He was an apprentice of sorts. He was discipled by Paul and Barnabas. The question is, have you been discipled? Have you been a Christian for a while and, you know, you just haven't been discipled? But are you content to start out as an assistant, as John Mark was? He was content to start out as an assistant. I love it when somebody fills out a ministry application and it says, where would you like to serve? And they say, where needed most? That's the true heart of a servant. 
I'm just going to trust you. Put me where you need me. Wherever the hole is, I'll fill in. That, to me, is a servant's heart. And as opposed to, and every church has it, somebody who says, I'm, I could fill in for you on Sunday. <laughs> no, not, no pride there, but, you know. <laughs> and the question is, have you discipled? Have you been a Christian a long time and discipled somebody? Don't hold on to that experience and that growth and those great things that the Lord has done for you. You've been a Christian for 10, 20, 30 years. You have a lot to offer. Don't hold on to that and then bury it with you. Do something with it. Pray about pouring what God has done in your life into a younger believer. They would just, it would be like a sponge. You know, you'd have to probably change your phone number because they'd all be calling you up, asking you Bible. I used to do that stuff. People who led me to the Lord constantly calling up, hey, what does this scripture mean? After a while, they just didn't answer the phone. <laughs> but pray about pouring yourself and what God has done for you into somebody else. And last thing, three types of relationship. There's the Paul relationships. The Paul ministered and discipled, okay? The Paul type of relationships. So sort of, if you could say, going down. Um, Timothy relationships. You know, the Timothy relationships look for somebody to disciple them. And, you know, Paul looked at him as, as his true son in the faith. And Barnabas relationships, Barnabas and Saul, kind of a side-by-side. Side. And I've heard uh, Bible preachers say this, three types of relationships you should have. There should always be somebody that you can go to who's, who's um, gone that road, who can give you counsel. You should pray about pouring into somebody else who's younger in the faith. And you should kind of have people who are kind of on the equal level with you so you could bounce things off of each other. Because at the end of the day, going back to that one scripture, it's the word of God that's going to increase. Let's pray. 